This podcast contains language which some people might find offensive. Your mum might be alright with it, your dad'll definitely be fine with it, but granny might not like it. That said, your kids might find it educational and learn some new words to make them look cool at school. Also, there are many views and opinions that you might not share, and some fabricated situations that obviously didn't happen. Listener discretion is advised. Just a couple of blokes Pouring all the liner notes Brother Rock Geeks My name is Phil and this is Julian. Now then. We are two middle-aged northerners, a.k.a. The Rock Geeks, taking a deep dive into the albums that we love, exploring who made them and how, where and when they were made. Last time out, uh, we took a look at ACDC's classic live album, If You Want Blood. And uh, thanks very much if you took time out of your day to listen to that. It's much appreciated and we hope you enjoyed what you heard. Um... Again, full disclosure, we are recording this first run of shows, of which this is the last one, uh, prior to completely getting our podcasting act together. But if you haven't already listened to uh, the previous episodes uh, that we've recorded in this run, you can probably do so via our website uh, or whichever streaming service you subscribe to. Um, On this latest episode of The Rock Geeks, we are going to feature one of the darkest yet most critically acclaimed albums of the 1990s uh, with uh, Alice in Chains' Dirt. So, Julian, I believe this was one of your favourites back in the day. This is the definition of a slow burner, I think, because it took a long time um, for it to sink in. But yes, it is one of my favourites. It's probably my favourite of the entire grunge era, to be honest. That's, That's a big statement. It is. But it is. So. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, you've got the the obvious. You know, you've got Super Unknown. You've got Nevermind. You've got Ten. Mm. Yeah, those... they're all good. Just because this is my favourite doesn't mean I don't like the others. But this is this yeah. is the one that I think I spent the most time listening to. Um, it's the one that took the longest to get into, and took the longest for me to kind of put to one side once I was into it. Sound got bad motor finger. I got into a few years later. Super unknown. I'm not that much of a fan of really. And never mind's just like, well, it's a staple, isn't it? <laughs> just you know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I, I mean, to be honest, this this album kind of passed me by at the that's time. A, that's a running theme for us, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. I think. Um, I mean, you know, I was, I was familiar with um, wood. Uh, as a single and uh, Them Bones uh, I can remember that um, getting quite a bit of play on MTV um, but in the main Alice in Chains kind of were one of those bands that just sort of regrettably at the time just passed me by so the artist is Alice in Chains and the album is Dirt which was their second um, full album release the band members involved are Lance Daly on lead vocals um, who also played rhythm guitar on Hate to Feel and Angry Chair. Jerry Cantrell, um, who sang co-lead vocals on Down in a Hole, Angry Chair and Wood, um, also sang backing vocals elsewhere, uh, played rhythm and lead guitar uh, and acoustic guitar on Down in a Hole. 
We've got Mike Starr on bass. This was uh, to be his last album with the uh, with the band before he was fired in January '93. While the band were touring to support the album, uh, and we've got Sean Kinney on drums. Before uh, we go on, yeah. can we just we probably won't talk about Mike Starr too much and his dismissal from the band. Yeah, but in light of Lane Staley, yeah. Mike Starr got fired, I think, for his drug use, which I think is. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine him saying, "Have you seen him over there? Yeah. What about him?" Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Um, it's it's a weird it's a weird thing, and there's a weird sort of power dynamic that goes on in successful bands, where mm. you know whoever is somebody else's meal ticket mm. um, gets to hang around longer. So if you if you if your currency is stronger, if you if you are the lead singer and songwriter then mm. you've got more chance of uh, surviving this is true i think his last show was rocking rio the full yeah. the full concerts yeah. on youtube isn't it yeah and you can, it uh, i think that is yeah that's the last one and i think there was some kind of incident later on that evening which um led to his dismissal but yeah i just think it's ironic that <laughs> yeah his yeah. last album was uh, an album all about heroin addiction and he was fired for drug use yeah, well, do you know what though? I, th- I think I think the nineties was a particularly toxic time for um, for bands where you know drug use and and alcoholism and, and and all the shit that goes along with success. You know, when you mix like a certain level of success into that, all mm. the shit that goes along with it. I think the nineties is quite unique, and and you know maybe it was something to do with the abundance of heroin, possibly. Um, there can't be that many genres where the lead singer of the bands are pretty much all dead. Yeah. Apart from yeah. Eddie Vedder. You know, like all the main players. Yeah. Maybe not all through drug, drug use, but, you know, it's, it's a bit odd that they're all gone. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, back on anyway, task. Yes. Um, the producers of, of Dirt were uh, Alice in Chains and uh, Dave Jordan, um, whose uh, other uh, producing credits... Or other studio credits for engineering, mixing and producing include Alice in Chains, Facelift, had previous with their um, first album, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Mother's Milk, uh, Ritual Dello Habitual, Jane's Addiction, and uh, last but not least, uh, amongst many others, uh, Break Like the Wind, Spinal Tap. Very good. Which was a, you know... Classic. a, A classic. What was it? The Majesty of Rock. And The Mystery of Roll, yeah. The Mystery of Roll, yeah, that was the one. So another producing credit for the album goes to Rick Parashar, um, who produced Wood, which was recorded as a single uh, for the single soundtrack um, before the Dirt Sessions began. Uh, his other credits include Alice in Chains' Sap, Pearl Jam 10, Temple of the Dog by Temple of the Dog, and Blind Melon by Blind Melon. Very good. Yeah, she's a, an it's a album. very good album. And we should, we should probably take a look at that at some point. Yep. Um, Dirt was recorded and mixed uh, between April and June 1992 at, uh, well, the main part of Dirt, excluding Wood, um, was recorded at two studios in particular, um, El Dorado Recording Studio in Burbank, California, and One on One Studios in Los Angeles. Um, Wood was recorded at London Bridge Studios in Seattle. Uh, The engineers on uh, Dirt were uh, Brian Karlstrom, Annette Cisneros, I believe that's how you pronounce that, I might be wrong, uh, and Ulrich Wilde. 
Um, it was mastered by Steve Hall and Eddie Schreyer at Future Disc, Hollywood, California, and released into the world uh, on September the 29th, 1992, on Columbia Records. So, uh, so Julian, um, as is customary at this point in the podcast, um, let's have a chat about the world in which Dirt was released into. So, 1992, things that happened... Go on. Nirvana's Nevermind went to number one in the US Billboard 200 uh, chart. Yes, it did. I think it knocked Michael Jackson off the top spot. There's well... A, there's a deeper meaning somewhere there, isn't yes, there? Yes, yeah. But uh, I can't imagine what it is. Yeah. Rather kindly, on the 26th of January, Boris Yeltsin announced that Russia will stop targeting United States cities with nuclear weapons. Which is very well, nice of him. Yes, that, that is good of him, yeah. yeah. Did, um, did um, the Americans reciprocate? Mm, I don't know. I think that's <laughs> I think that's Vladimir Putin's current beef, isn't it? Possibly, yes. Um, 7th February, the Maastricht Treaty is signed. What was the Maastricht Treaty? It led uh, to the creation of the European Union. Ah, right, okay. What's that? What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, former, former Beatle George Harrison tells Billboard magazine that he recently discovered that it was born on February the 24th and not February the 25th, as he thought for most of his life. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. New York Mafia boss John Gotti was convicted of murder. Um, 1992 riots in Los uh, Angeles, yes. which we will revisit in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Guns N' Roses Metallica Stadium Tour was in full force. And this was when, and on August the 8th, James Hetfield was burned by pyrotechnics. Yeah. At Montreal's Olympic Stadium, forcing them to cancel the second hour of the show, which I'd have been happy with because yeah. I probably thought you've done enough now. Co-headliners Guns N' Roses took the stage, but an early walk-off by Axl Rose uh, meant that there were riots on the streets of Montreal. I might be speaking out of blind ignorance here, but Canada doesn't strike me as being the kind of place (laughs) where people would go out on the streets and riot. Mm. It's too nice and too civilised in my limited experience of visiting there twice for a couple of weeks at each stretch. Um, so they must have been seriously outraged in Montreal. Mm. So the tour resumed on August the 25th uh, with his t- guitar technician replacing him on guitar, surprisingly enough. Who, what? Axel Rose? <laughs> James Etfield. Oh, right. what, what's his name? Can you remember the guitar technician's name? He came up in our Master of Puppets episode as well, I think. Oh, no, I can't. I'm sorry. John Marshall. All oh, right. Sinead O'Connor ripped yeah. up a picture of the Pope. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, I remember uh, being on stage at some MTV thing and Chris Christopherson, she she got roundly booed by the audience. I think it was at Madison Square Garden and she started... Beefing. ...saying something in protest with her fist raised and right. Chris Christopherson, of all people, came out and gently put his arm round her and guided her off the stage. Uh, births, Francis Bean Cobain. All right, wow. Selena Gomez, Neymar, Mo Salah. So Francis, hang on, Francis Bean Cobain is now in her 30s. Francis Bean Cobain was born on August the 18th, 1992. So she's now 30. Yeah. Oh my God. I know. How time flies. Yeah. Mo Salah, Miley Cyrus and Joe Keery. Deaths, Francis Bacon. Okay. <laughs> my favourite one. Uncle Charlie Osborne, who was American Fiddler by Elton. <laughs> Fiddler of what? I don't know. He just says, May 27th, <laughs> un- Uncle Charlie Osborne, American fiddler. <laughs> and <laughs> and what, what exactly were he fiddling? I have no idea. But he fiddled. And, uh, he died in that year. 
Maybe it's what killed him in the end. <laughs> Christopher, Christopher McCandless, subject of the book Into the Wild. Oh, yeah, yeah. Eddie Vedder soundtrack, is that? He did, yeah. Eddie yeah. Vedder did the soundtrack for that, yeah. Uh, Ling Ling was the first band, uh, the first panda that China gave to the US, died age 23. Oh. Marlene Dietrich, Benny Hill, John Cage. Oh, John Cage. Albert King. Yeah, yeah. Big year. Wow, yeah. Pop, yeah. Qu- pop quiz, quickly. Go on. Biggest selling album of the year, The Bodyguard Soundtrack <sighs> by <sighs> Are you pretending you don't know or you really don't know? Oh, uh, Whitney Houston did Correct. Um, mm. Yeah, sorry, I, I was getting confused with Brian Adams and um, everything yeah. I do. Equally horrific. Yeah. Guess how many copies approximately The Bodyguard Soundtrack sold? Ooh, I don't. I, I'm not sure, but I'm not sure anybody's ever confused Brian Adams with Houston before. No. Well done. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, I'd say ah, uh, forty million. Forty-five. Well done. Three years, five months, and two days in the life of what? An album title. Arrested Development. All oh, right. Okay. Lucky Town and Human Touch. Oh, that Bruce Springsteen. God's Great Banana Skin. I've no idea. Chris Rea. Fun- Funky Divas. Funky Divas. No way. Oh, um, um, Go on. Um, it's never there somewhere. Get, never gonna That's get the it. one. Never gonna get Never gonna get it. On Vogue. Yep. Well done. It's a shame about Ray. Oh, the Mighty Lemonheads who unfortunately aren't so mighty anymore. Also that year, Rage Against the Machine's eponymous debut album. Yeah. Uh, Copper Blue, Sugar. Yeah. Adrenalised by Def Leppard, the Southern Harmony Musical Companion. Yeah, Black Crows. Great album, that. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. Core. Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. Yep, very good. Very good. So, I, And then just some films, Aladdin, Bodyguard, Home Alone 2, Basic Instinct. Le- I'm not sure we needed a second one, but... Or a third or a fourth, which I think they got to. Yeah. Lethal Weapon 3, Batman Returns, yeah. which I think is the only film I've ever walked out of. I think you went yes, with us, didn't you? Yeah, I went with you. It was absolutely boring. Yeah. The pants off us, so we went and drank some beer instead. We did. Uh, a Few Good Men. Sister Act, Bram Stoker's yeah. Dracula, and Wayne's World. I, I've got a soft spot for Bram, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I don't and know a lot I've of people criticised Gary Oldman at the time for his portrayal, but I, I liked the gothic. I mean, I was, yeah. I was, I was I, at the same time I was watching that. I was watching The Crow. All oh, right, okay. And, you know, and that's why I thought because I liked the dark sort of gothic mm. uh, cinematic experience. That's why I thought Batman Returns would be a good bet, but. It was singularly one of the most boring films I've ever watched. It was, yeah. I think we just we were just thinking we could be in park now. Yeah. Drinking we, beer. We could be sat in a swing <laughs> with uh, a bottle of Thunderbirds. Yeah, 2020. Rather kind than, of special rule. Yeah, yeah. And that would have been it. Yep, so yeah. that's cool. a bit of the context of 1992. So, I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about sort of the early to mid-90s before and lots of stiff competition... For any band releasing an album at that time, I think. Mm. Um, lots of great music around. Um, some of which I'm sure we will dive into in future episodes. Yep. Um, so, I mean, as, as you mentioned earlier, um, key to this narrative of, of Alice in Chains recording dirt is, is the LA riots. Um, and I'll just read this um, section uh, of text from uh, Wikipedia. Dirt was recorded during the Los Angeles riots that erupted following the acquittal of four LAPD officers caught on camera beating unarmed black motorist Rodney King. The riots started on the first day of recording. 
The band was watching TV when the verdict for the incident was announced. Jerry Cantrell was in the store buying some beer when a man came in and started looting the place. Cantrell also got stuck in traffic and saw people pulling each other out of their cars and beating them. Um, the band tried to get out of town without getting hurt while LA was protesting against police brutality. They took Slayer vocalist Tom Araya with them. As you would. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Tom. Yeah. Um, and they went to Joshua Tree Desert for four or five days until things calmed down. Uh, and then moved back into the studio and started recording the album. Took Tom Araya, went to the Joshua Tree Desert... Um for four or five days until things calm down a bit. Yeah, <laughs> I love yeah. that turn of phrase. I think I think I, th- I think it took a bit longer down. than four or five days, didn't it? For, yeah, for 30, for, 30 years if, on, if it's not fully serves. fully calmed down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a great um, episode, a um, couple of episodes of the Dollop podcast, which centre around um, the 1984 um, Olympic Games oh. and. Um, what the authorities in LA did to try and clean up the streets of Los Angeles, which sort of extends into um, the whole LAPD police brutality right. thing. Well worth a listen. I can imagine what uh, they did. Yeah, it will it will horrify, mm. and oddly, um, as the dollop does, entertain as right. well, but um, in in a way that will pique your prick your conscience. Um, so yeah, I can highly recommend that. So the recording of Dirt, um, as we've mentioned, took place in two separate studios. Um, we're going to focus on one-on-one studios and El Dorado studios in this section and omit the London Bridge Wood session um, because really, like, Wood was, I think, was an add-on um, from a previous project and when you listen to it sonically, it is really quite different to the other 12 tracks hmm. that, that comprised it. Um, and I think it was probably on there because the record company thought, well, you know, we might, this single was quite successful, we might shift a few extra units. I think it fits. Um, it does fit. As it, a song, it's like it, it really fits in with the rest of the album. I mean, I know sonically yeah. it might be slightly different, but uh, people who aren't listening out for that kind of thing, I don't think, I'm not sure if you'd really know. But I yeah. think it, it, it's perfect. I mean, it's... You know, to be the last song on the album and to be a single is unusual. Yeah. yeah. In fact, when we come back to it, the, the very the, the track listing on this album is is a little bit odd regarding the singles that were released and the placing of them on the record. Yeah. But anyway, we digressed. So. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I I agree. It does it does fit perfectly onto the album. I just feel like. Um, you know, it was placed at the very end for a reason because it's it's distinct and separate to the rest of the body of, of work. You know, the 12 tracks that were produced from those recording sessions um, have a different feel and intensity to me, hmm. to, to Wood. So, um, and also, you know, these podcasts are getting quite long. So <laughs> all right. <laughs> if I go into, like, all three studios, it's going to, like, get a bit too long. Um so the recording of Dirt began at One on One Studios in Los Angeles. Um, One on One Studios was opened in 1972 in a former 1950s department store located in North Hollywood by a chap called Jim David, um, who was the son of lyricist Hal David. Factoid. 
Yeah, um, Hal David's hits uh, with his songwriting partner Bert Bacharach include uh, I'll Never Fall in Love Again and Do You Know the Way to San Jose. Um, both classics of the 60s, uh, mm-hmm. what do I want to say? Easy listening genre. Yeah. I'll put it that way. During the 80s, one on one seemingly became the studio of choice for um, pretty much every hair metal band in Los Angeles. With Van Halen, Poison, Motley Crue, Kiss and Bon Jovi all recording albums there. Although, like I said, this could have been something to do with LA being the epicentre of the hair metal scene. However, the biggest selling album recorded at one-on-one was not of the hair variety. Um, In 1991, Bob Rock produced and recorded Metallica's breakthrough into the mainstream Black Album there. Bob Rock had quite, you know, glam hair, didn't he? He did, he had... Fantastic, blonde and... I would describe his hair as luxurious. Luxurious, yeah. Although it was hair metal bands who you wouldn't normally associate Alice in Chains with, they did used to be a glam metal band, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. And they supported Van Halen and yeah. Kiss. In fact, the very last show was in support of Kiss, wasn't it? Yeah. Support. So they kind of straddled the genres. And they were due to go on tour with Metallica as well, I think, around the Black Album era. And then they had to um, drop out for health reasons. Ah, right, okay. Was that... Um uh, health spelled R-E-H-A-B Something like that, yeah <laughs> Yep As a side note um, Metallica also recorded And Justice For All at one-on-one um, right. Which goes to show that great studios Do not necessarily produce great sounding albums No um, Terrible sounding album Yes, absolutely Although, you know, they were Has its place Yeah, uh, yeah They were under a certain amount of Stress, weren't they? Yep um, Anyway it was shortly after this that, against the backdrop of uh, the LA riots, Alice in Chains entered one-on-one studios uh, to begin tracking drums and bass guitar for what would become Dirt. Um, in a 2020 interview with Dean Del Rey's Let There Be Talk podcast, which is excellent, by the way, um, I highly recommend uh, having a listen to that. He might get us on now, you've said that. Yeah. One day. Yeah. One day, one day. Dave Jordan remembered the following about the first days of the sessions. So this is... uh, I'm not going to do an accent this week. I'm just going to read it. Oh, go on. (sighs) No, you don't have to. It's all right. No, no, I can't. Um, Do it Euro trash style. Can you remember when they used to do... (laughs) Remember that show? (laughs) Like a brummy accent. A brummy accent. French woman. (laughs) French woman. Yeah. Pusting right there. So, Dirt we did at one-on-one. The day we started recording was the day that the LA riots started. We call in there, we all show up okay, we're going to start tracking, set up the drums and that stuff. And I think the first day we got a song down, I think we did Rooster. And Lane is in the other room watching television and he says, wow, do you see all this shit that's going on? And the next thing, they had a curfew and we couldn't get into the studio for a week. So not the not the quickest start to uh, to recording, you, you know, you're, you're all raring to go and then suddenly there's a riot and yeah. a curfew. To be fair, though, I mean, the day we started recording and they actually got the drum set up, it's quite good going, isn't it? That is that is quite good going, actually, yeah. Yeah. Because, well, compared to um, uh, Manic Street Preacher's Holy Bible, where yeah. um, they were in that tiny room yeah. and hitting yeah. drums for an entire day, just getting the sound right. Yeah. In a 2013 interview with the freelance journalist Joe Bosso for Music Radar, Jordan stated the following about the recording of Dirt. The material was great. I knew it was going to be a strong record. 
We recorded it at one-on-one when Metallica did their Black Album. Lars told me that they had this 31-inch woofer for the kick drum. I rented a PA system and put the kick drum, toms and snare through this woofer, plus these huge side monitors. That went into the room sound and it made the drums sound like artillery going off. I credit Lars for turning me onto that room. So, um, it's quite an interesting technique that I think I think it's worth exploring just a little bit. Jordan um, is essentially sending the signal from the microphones that are on the drum kit back to a PA system that is also set up in the drum room. Right. In a fan Q&A on gearspace.com, Jordan explained further, um, I sent the snare, kick and toms to the PA. I only do this on slow to mid-tempo songs because on really fast-tempo songs, it would be just a blur. Also, I need a fairly large room to do this. The reason I use a PA is to let the kick, snare and toms compete with the cymbals on large drum setups. I use a PA maybe on 20% of the recordings I do. It depends on the song, room and type of band. So Lars Ulrich has got something to... um... Be thanked for. I know. I'm sure he's got some called Lane. He might have. I think he has. Well, him and him and Jerry Cantrell are, are good mates, you know. They're, they're quite they're quite close. And there's um <laughs> there's a YouTube video of them doing after Lane Staley's died. There's um them doing wood with James Hetfield and Lee Bowles, right. right? Which is good as well. Yeah. So yeah, so that's quite interesting. That um taking you know the mic signal, pumping it back into a massive PA system, and then letting that fire back at the drum mics. I mean, it's just, it sounds like to me like a recipe for feedback loop but mm. um he made it work i mean you know he's obviously a very talented and accomplished uh, producer and engineer so you know he can get away with uh, doing stuff like that jordan goes on to further explain his approach to recording the drums on dirt um i used sm57s on the top and bottom of the snare 421s on top and bottom of the toms that's the sennheiser md421 um, AKG 414 on the overheads and two sets of stereo room mics, um, one set close and one far. I also had a Neumann M49 close to the floor about 6 inch from the drums for the kick. Preamps were 1073 Neves and I used for compression uh, 1176s on the kick and snare, Fairchild 670s on the stereo room mics, DBX 160s on the toms, Summit compressors on the overheads. Uh, the big sound on the drums came from the room. I did have a dry room-type reverb on the drums when mixing. I put the M49 about 6 or 7 inches from the kick, close to the floor. By the way, the tops and bottoms of the toms and snare were mixed together, flipping the bottom mics 180 degrees and putting the compressors across the bus after combining. Um, what it means by that, we talked about um, phase, the phase relationship of microphones in the mm. Manic Street Preachers Holy Bible episode. Flipping the phase 180 degrees means that when you have two mics on one source, cancelling out the phase difference gives a stronger signal and a, right. and a fuller sound, um, which is why I would have done that. The drum verb came from a Lexicon 480 uh, with my own proprietary settings. In fact, I use this program on most of my records. By the way, the sound is developed from a room sound and then tweaked heavily and stored on a plugging card that I have. That Lexicon um, 480, I believe, is quite a significant piece of kit in Dave Jordan's career because it was that piece of kit um, that led to his uh, early collaborations with Brian Eno and David Byrne. Mm. Because um, 
he basically put an ad in the music press at the time that uh, El Dorado Studios, where he worked, had a Lexicon 480, um, when in fact they didn't. Um, but this led to Brian Eno calling up and saying, you know, I hear you've got this unit, can I come and have a look at it? Like, yeah, 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 I have Brian. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so then he had to like basically... Find one. <laughs> find one in, in short order, which, he, which of course he did. And then that led to uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts uh, and his work on... Oh, what's the Talking Heads album called? Naked? Remain in Light. All right, okay. That one, yeah. So there you go. So, um, finally, um, Jordan talks about his technique for recording drums in general. Um, when recording drums, I commit from the start any compression and EQ that I'm using. Commitment we, to the sound. Committing to the sound, like we talked about on the Master of Puppets episode. Um, that being said... Um, I try to cut drums as flat as I can. However, I do EQ the kick and snare. I high pass the overheads around 80 hertz to keep out any unwanted low end. By the way, there are a lot of good low frequencies in the cymbals. Um, what I do in recording is take the drum sound halfway there to the mix sound. I'm not afraid to, of committing sounds generally. When recording, I have the finished sound in my mind. Uh, the whole production technique is focused on the final mix. I have that luxury since I always end up mixing what I record. Um, so commenting on how the bass guitar was recorded uh, for Dirt at One on One Studios, Jordan remembered the following. For the bass I had an SVT amp plus a Sans amp track. A Sans amp uh, is a little um, DI box. I think you can get it's, a rack version as well. Yeah, um, yeah. They're like little... You know, like I've had a couple... And they just turn your normal amp and they just supercharge it. Yeah. They're, they're absolutely yeah. incredible. They're not cheap, but they yeah. are really, really good. They're kind of like a, a, a deluxe DI box on steroids. They I certainly think. are, yeah. A lot of them. Um, we'll get into that a bit later on when we talk about uh, the gear in more depth. Um, I had an EFX track for the bass that had a slight chorusing flanging, plus a straight DI track and a Vox Westminster bass amp with an 18-inch speaker. So I had five tracks of bass. Preamps were 1073s. Uh, 1176 compressor on each track everything drums and bass were cut flat with only slight EQ on kick and snare that would explain the bass sound on this album because it's absolutely enormous yeah yeah even the when you the it, number of tracks well yeah I mean yeah. the intro to wood although it's from a different session I think that's a lot to do with the guitar itself as well but when you even listen to the bass in the mix of other songs it's it's, it's an amazing bass sound yeah. there's a lot to it there is, there is. There's a lot of uh, lot of depth and colour, and um, yep, it's a great bass sound. We can also credit Metallica um, for me being able to make an educated guess uh, as to some of the equipment that Jordan would have used to record the bass and drum tracks for Dirt at One on One. Part of the A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica documentary was filmed in the control room at One on One Studios. Uh, throughout the end of 1990 and the beginning of 91. We've watched that a few times, haven't we? We have, yeah, <laughs> we have. Um, allowing us uh, glimpses of the mixing console and some outboard rack equipment. Um, a 2010 article on MixOnline.com written by Sarah Benzuli. Um, it's a good name, that, isn't it? About the making of Enter Sandman helped to narrow things down further uh, where the mixing console is concerned. Uh, in this one sentence, Rock and Staub... Um, sound engineer Randy Staub 
I believe that's how you pronounce that. I think there's enough people in England called Randy, is there? <laughs> it's really overlooks as a name, isn't it? I, is it I, I think it has its origins in Germany, doesn't it? I think Does it's it? a short name like of Randolph. Randolph. Yeah. All right, I just think it's a great uh, name, Randy. Yeah, it is a good name. <laughs> So yeah, um, this one sentence, um, Rock and Staub, sound engineer Randy Staub, recorded via one-on-one's SSL using numerous Neve mic pre's. So knowing that one-on-one studios housed an SSL mixing console, um, I was able to cross-reference the footage from the Metallica documentary with contemporaneous images of SSL mixing consoles and managed to narrow it down to um, the SL4000E. Sounds like a Mercedes. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It sounds like a, a soft top Mercedes. Yeah. Um, which was first manufactured in 1979. Or it could have been the SL4000G, which was introduced in 1987. So from SolidStateLogic.com. Um, Solid State Logic was founded in 1969 by the late Colin Sanders CBE. The company's first products were switching systems for pipe organs, for which Colin coined the phrase Solid State Logic as a descriptor. Um, Colin then started Acorn Studios in the village of Stonesfield, Oxfordshire, where he lived, and began making his own consoles. Uh, By 1976, he had built the first series A console. A total of two were made and sold. Always committed to improving things, the console was reinvented as the SL4000B series, uh, the first of which was made in 1976. Uh, six B series consoles were built, and the beginnings of SSL's international business commenced. Uh, the big breakthrough came uh, with the introduction of the SL4000E series in 1979, uh, the console which transformed the music industry and whose variants, the SL4000G series, and then followed by the 6000, the 8000, the 9000J and the 9000K, uh, dominated the professional recording studio industry for two decades. Um, it's kind of hard to discern the difference um, being a layman from the SL4000D and the 4000G. Um, it's one of those two consoles uh, that Dirt was uh, recorded with. Dave Jordan doesn't actually specify right. uh, in any of the interviews that I've found. Um, and why would he? I mean, you know, it's only geeks like us. That niche, isn't it? It is quite niche, yeah. It's only, it's only people like us that are interested in such matters. So, yeah, so there you go. That's um, a, a brief um, visit to one-on-one studios in, uh, in LA. So, following the, the, the recording of basic tracks at one-on-one... Um, the band relocated to El Dorado Studios. Much of the following information um, has been taken from eldoradorecording.com. So Eldorado Studios had been running in one form or another since 1954, where at the intersection of Hollywood Boulevard and Vine Street, um, a.k.a. Hollywood and Vine, um, it first opened its doors as a workshop for the musical polymath Johnny Otis. Now, Johnny Otis... We, you know, we might very well end up talking about Johnny Otis at some point in the future. Um, he, he was there right at the birth of rock and roll. Um, is responsible for discovering artists such as Little Esther and uh, Etta James. Right. Um, he also co-wrote Hound Dog. Um, did he? With Lieber and Staller, but they did the dirty on him and did they now? diddled him out of his royalties. Yeah. Well, he's a polymath, so... Yeah, yeah. Do you know what a polymath is? It's someone who's good at everything. I know, so I, yeah. yeah, maybe he was able to take him to court. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Quite what is uh, meant by the word workshop in that statement is unclear, but it was around this time that Johnny Otis began to dabble with the idea of starting his own recording and publishing companies. So it stands to reason uh, that he would have needed a recording facility to achieve this. And indeed, in a 2000 interview uh, with Blues Blast magazine, um, his son, the musician Shuggy Otis, which is a great name. Brilliant. I mean, a name like that, you are born to be on a stage. Shuggy Otis uh, refers to El Dorado Studios as his dad's studio. Um, so workshop might be something of a misnomer. According to El Dorado house engineer and producer Dave Jordan, El Dorado was one of two studios in LA, in LA uh, that were built in the 1950s specifically for the purpose of recording rock and roll music. The other being a studio called Gold Star, um, which is massive in mm. you know uh, 1950s uh, recording uh, rock and roll circles. Unfortunately, Gold Star uh, burned to the ground in 1984 and is now a strip mall. What's a strip mall? I'm going to guess that, like, the American use of the word strip is, like, a street. Yeah. Or, or you know, like, maybe it's like a... Um, oh, what's the word? Um, oh, you know what I mean? A row of shops in a... Parade. Town, a parade or a... <laughs> not, not parade. Um, it is a parade. Or, uh, I know what you mean. I think you know, it's just, just a, a row of shops, yeah, basically. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's not. It's not um, what it, I don't think it's the same as a strip club. Right. Put it that way. Um, if it was, I wouldn't be shopping there. No. Okay. Because I'd just be too embarrassed. Can you imagine paying for your goods by stuffing it in somebody's bikini? <laughs> like yeah, you've, I can't you've only popped out for some milk <laughs> or you know a new pair of shoes. Here we are. And, and they're up on counter next to till, and you're stuffing twenty quid into the bikini. That's not how I want to do my shopping. It makes me think of National Lampoon's Christmas vacation. <laughs> Can I take something out for you? <laughs> so by the time Alice in Chains stepped foot into El Dorado in 1992 to record guitar and vocal overdubs, um, the studio had moved from its original location to Marvin Gaye's old studio on Sunset Boulevard. Um, this move was due to structural damage at the original location caused by the 1987 Whittier Narrows earthquake. El Dorado Studios moved to its current location, a custom-built facility in Burbank in 1996. Back in 92, producer Dave Jordan um, had been working at El Dorado Studios as an engineer and producer for over a decade already. The first two albums of serious note that he worked on there were My Life in the Bush of Ghosts by Brian Eno and David Byrne, in 1979 into 1980 and the Talking Heads Remaining Light album which was also in 1980 from mixonline.com this is an interview with Dave Jordan the basic tracks went down really easily more so than what we did with the first record at London Bridge Uh, we finished at one on one and then we went to El Dorado to do overdubs including Jerry's guitar parts I did the mixing there too. That's where I developed the style of blending Jerry's sound using highs, mids and lows from three different amps. So this is quite quite a unique technique at the time. Right. Um, essentially, Jordan is splitting Jerry Cantrell's guitar signal into three distinct frequency bands. Mm. So he's got his low, his mids and his highs and he's treating those sig- signals differently as we shall uh, get into uh, in the next paragraph. 
I used the Bogner Ecstasy for the mid-amp and the Rockman for the top. Uh, now the Rockman is, is, we will get into when we talk about the gear that was used, but he's talking about um, a little headphone amplifier. I'm going to say, I'm sure that's, um, it rings a bell, that has been something that's not your traditional power amp yeah. kind of big stage setup type amp well it was originally conceived i mean i'll get into it a bit later but it was originally conceived as a means to practice guitar with headphones yeah. so you plugged your hi-fi system into one input and your guitar into the other and then you could play along mm. with your cassettes or vinyl or whatever um while listening on headphones. So it's quite a neat little piece of kit for the time. Um, we'll have a chat about that a bit later on. However, for the bottom frequencies, and here is where the big sound came from, I used a Bogner Fish preamp modified by Bogner with a VHT amp and a Marshall cab with Vox Bulldog speakers for the bottom. I used SM57s to mic. To split the amps, I used a Lucas Deceiver. Now, embarrassingly, I haven't uh, looked into the Lucas Deceiver. Maybe we could... Uh, have I'll have a quick, quick look now. Have a quick look. I did not mix the amps, but left them separate to the end before mixing, and Jerry doubled himself, so there are six tracks of amps before mixing. The trick in mixing is to make the crossover points uh, with high-pass and low-pass filters. To this end, I mix on an SSL console that had these filters on every module. For the low amp, I set the low-pass at only 300Hz, the mid-amp was 300Hz to 4K, and the high-amp um, was a 4K to 8K cutoff. I cut everything flat. However, I did EQ the amps in the mix using a mild EQ curve from amp to amp. Basically, the Lucas thing doesn't create any signal of its own. It doesn't amplify a signal. It doesn't make any tone of its own. It's just a method of, of routing instruments, levels, signals to various destinations. There you go. That's so, all it is. So, it's just a way of being able to split things. Yeah, so it? it's like one in, six out or whatever. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad we sorted that out. Saved my uh, saved my blushes. Jordan goes on to say, for lead guitars on both albums, I used my 1988 Marshall Super Lead 100 Watt modified by Mike Moran. Um, I'm assuming Mike Moran is a uh, an amp tech. Yeah. Um, in the LA area. When talking about recording the vocals, Jordan had the following to say. All vocals by Lane, lead and backgrounds, were tripled. All of Jerry's vocals were doubled. Lane was the master of matching himself, and most of the vocals were done in one or two takes. I usually lay down five tracks of master vocals, and then I comp them. What do comp mean, for those who don't know? In this context, um, he either means compress, or he means... Like cut and splice I between takes. I think it's takes. cut and splice, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. After I have the master lead track, uh, then we double and triple to that. All right. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. So he basically cuts together the best of all the parts and sing it like that again. Yeah. And, and again. Then, yeah. And then repeat the best bits. Lane would normally get a master take in the first or second track, and then I would continue to try a few more takes to see if he would top himself. He would give his all in every take. It's quite interesting that because the only other person um, that I've heard it said of who can do like vocals in the first or second take is David Bowie. 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 It's Bowie. Bowie. You say potato, <laughs> I say Bowie. <laughs> um, and I heard that 
Funnily enough, I heard that from the horse's mouth. Um, I was once fortunate enough to meet Ken Scott, who All engineered right. Uh, right. Uh, Hunky Dory. Right, okay. And he said, David Bowie never did more than two takes, and right, okay. usually the first take was good enough. Good. So there you go. He goes, uh, Jordan goes on to say, um, on Lane's voice, I used a Neumann M49 mic. Um, I had two 24-track uh, machines, and I used 16 tracks for Lane's vocals. I triple-tracked him and he sounded great. He knocked out his parts and just sang great. Um, I made this effect using delays on Lane's vocals with an even-tied harmoniser. In fact, I called the effect Lane Staley. Reverb can darken things up, but delays keep things hard and powerful. None of the mixes took long. A lot of them were done in just half an hour. Can you imagine that? Like, you're releasing, like one of the greatest albums of the 90s and you're not spending any longer than half an hour per track. Well, it sounds like he already knew what it was going to sound like before in his head. Maybe everything's gearing towards, well, I know what it's going to sound like. I'm not going to discover anything new when I'm mixing it. I know exactly what I want it to sound like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, Um, quite quite interesting that um, he chose to triple track the vocals because... Normally, um, double tracking has the desired effect. Mm. You know that sort of thicker kind of fuller-bodied sound. To 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 double track is usually enough. So to, to triple track is is quite rare, I think. And especially because there are so many harmonies on this. I wonder if he triple tracked all the lead kind of lines, and then what what he did for the harmonies as well. I'm not surprised he yeah. needed you know, a ton of tracks yeah. you know, available for the vocals to go down on. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, like, you listen to Lane Staley's voice and you're like, live especially, and it's like, it's big enough, is that, surely? Yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting because um, Lane Staley's voice was quite polarising at the time. A lot of um, record company people felt like he, he was singing in the wrong register, like he needed to sing higher and that his voice was too low. And a lot of people didn't get it because there was a lot of like screamy metal stuff going on and he just wasn't doing that. Yeah. I mean, he does get pretty high up in the register. I think there's a bit in Man in the Box off the first album, which is like way up there. Yeah. He has got an incredible voice, but then Rooster's really low as well, isn't it? Yeah. Like so the the verse on Rooster's kind of way down there. Yeah. Very great voice. Still lots of power though in that mm. lower register. There's, you know, a lot of, a lot of people... Um, you know, when they get down into that register, don't maintain that sense of like vocal force mm. and power. You know, it's quite it's quite tricky to do to to sort of sing forcefully in that lower register. So yeah, um, moving on to the mixing console, um, Jordan stated that two uh, in two separate answers on the Gearspace Q and A um, that he always records on a Neve console and mixes on an SSL SL Pro 1000. Yeah. Neve console again. Yeah. That must be six in a row. <laughs> I Maybe think, not. I think we're six, six for six. <laughs> Apart from the Manix. Yeah. Um, Maybe Iron Maiden as well. Yeah, yeah. The first part of this statement uh, would contradict what we've already discussed regarding one-on-one's SSL console unless there was a second studio uh, at one-on-one that had a Neve console installed that we don't know about. Maybe, maybe there was a Studio B there. And the second part would confirm that Eldorado um, also housed an SSL uh, SL4000 console. Whether or not it was uh, an, uh, an E or a G, I don't know. But, uh, but there you go. So, yeah, so that sort of wraps up um, 
the recording of, of Dirt. Indeed it does. Um, a lot less complicated than uh, Pinkerton, thankfully. Oh, thank God for that. Um, you know, two studios in the same city. What more could you ask for? Exactly. Should we talk about the gear? Yep. Okay. It's quite nice in this episode to be able to talk about different guitars. Yes. You know, because yeah. normally it's, well, you know, Gibsons, Fenders, yeah. etc. At least we've got something different to go on here. Yeah, and something really quite different, which which is kind of unique to Jerry Cantrell, really. Mm. I cannot think of another artist off the top of my head who's as well known for using this guitar as Angus Young is for mm. using a Gibson SG. Um, so what does he use then? So Jerry Cantrell uh, was using um, GNL Rampage guitars, mm. um, of which he had two famously. One was um, uh, was known as the Blue Dress due to the Pinup Girl sticker that Cantrell adorned it with, and the other was known as No War. Um, which had a No War slash Stars and Stripes sticker stuck to it. So from what I have gleaned in Interwebland, uh, No War is used as a backup and alternate tuning guitar. Um, Cantrell tunes his guitars to E-flat and drop D-flat. And Blue Dress is Cantrell's number one. I'm not sure about G&L guitars. It's the headstock. Um, Everybody everybody swears, but... when you get GNL fans love GNL guitars, yeah. don't they? Like yeah. the best guitars Leo Vender ever had a hand in designing and making. Yeah. But for me, I just can't get past that weird swirly point. That you know that yeah. bit on the headstock that's a bit kind of. They look a bit clunky to me. Some of them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like well, they are supposed it, to be brilliant. So yeah, yeah. I mean, Leo Fender uh, famously said that they are the best guitars he ever made. Oh, I remember that advert. So, yeah. There you go. Um, So in a 2021 interview with Guitar World, Cantrell said of the Blue Dress guitar, I've semi-retired that guitar. It's up at a museum in Seattle right now. Which Which is? The um, Mopop, Museum of Pop Culture. What else is in there that we've talked about recently? Oh, tons of stuff. Um, We came up in another episode and I can't quite remember why. Yeah, they're, um, they're like Jimi Hendrix's mixing desk. Oh, is there? Oh, that might be it. Um, from electric, the original desk that was in Electric Ladyland. Maybe we talked about it in the Peter yeah. episode. Then. Yeah, there's, there's 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 tons of really cool exhibits up there, of which this is one of them. When we started making this record, and maybe even the last Alice in Chains album, I had to request them uh, to send it back to me for the studio sessions. Um, that guitar has been on every record I've ever made in one form or another. This must be just before we started using those. Um, Music Man's. Yeah. It's got like a... I don't know if it's a custom Music Man. But I think a lot uh, of the... it, He's got one that was gifted to him by Eddie Van Halen. Has he? Oh, All yeah. right, okay. Because yeah. they're funny-looking guitars as well, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they've got a really sort of stubby headstock, haven't yeah. they, with four on one side yeah. and two on the other, and it kind of looks a bit underformed. Odd. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, um, 
GNL Guitars uh, was formed by George Fullerton, Leo Fender, and Dale Hyatt in 1979. The name you might recognise there is Leo Fender, who was the designer of the iconic Fender Telecaster and Stratocaster guitars. Early GNL models drew heavily on these two designs, uh, with the F100 and the S500 bearing more than a passing resemblance to the Stratocaster, but according to GNL, each model had an improved tremolo system and electronics. It's the F100 that the Rampage uh, that Control was using most resembles. Um, and the Rampage kind of looks like a stripped back uh, mm. to the Bare Essentials version of the F100, sporting just one pickup, uh, one volume control, and a Carla tremolo system. I'm looking at a picture of it now. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So I don't like the picture on it. No. I'm too prudish for anything <laughs> like that. Um, yeah, one pickup. Yeah, Carl, the tremolo system. You know, for the nut on the Carl, on the, these tremolo yeah. system, is it like drilled through the back of the neck? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Right, okay, yeah. just yeah. checking. So this um, this back-to-basics approach was GNL's response to the 80s Superstrat phase, kicked off by Eddie Van Halen with his modified Kramer Frankenstrat, um, and then jumped on by the likes of ESP and Ibanez in Japan and Jackson and Charvel in the USA. Around the same time as the Rampage appeared in 1985, a number of single pickup Superstrat style guitars with locking tremolo systems uh, were, they, were either already in production or were in the works. For example, the Ibanez Roadstar 2, the RS315, uh, ESP Superstrat, imaginatively named, um, the Charvel Model 1. Fender got involved in the uh, Superstrat action with the Fender Contemporary Stratocaster. Which just sounds like a really boring name for a super strat, doesn't it? The eighties were a really funny yeah. time for guitars, weren't they? Do you know we, some of the models that came out and how they looked, and a lot of yeah. it was to do with the image around the bands at, at the time. But there were some very strange looking yeah. guitars at the time. And you know, Fender were making some really crap guitars in the eighties. Mm. Um, there's like that. There's a there's a bass they made where the pickups are all slanted. It's like got two. Yeah. Anyway, it looks ridiculous, but yeah, I think people are just trying to, you know, just, yeah. you know, now it's more traditional and it. People just want traditional looking guitars, but yeah. I think then people just thought, well, let's just try something. But can you, can you imagine like trying to jump on board this really exciting um, musical genre that's all hedonistic and, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll and, and all the guitars are like in, in neon pink and green and blue um, and then calling it the Fender Contemporary Stratocaster. What do you think they should have called it? I don't know, just, you know. The Sexy Strat? Yeah, yeah. Well, else could The Sexacaster. Yeah. Um, Spunkacaster. Spunkacaster. That's it. <laughs> um there was also uh, the Kramer Beretta. There you go, Beretta. It's mm. more instantly more dynamic and exciting, isn't it? Yeah. So the Rampage uh, remained in production until 1991. It's a relatively short-lived uh, model, which probably lends to its um, desirability. Uh, mm. Probably not that many made. Control acquired his Rampage brand new while working, also known as smoking pot and playing guitars all day long. Uh, which is how he described it in the same interview, um, at the Arnold and Morgan Music Company in Dallas, Texas, and promptly customised it by sticking a picture of a scantily clad pin-up girl to the body, hence the guitar's nickname, Blue Dress. Pantrell said of the guitar in a 2010 interview with Guitar World, From the very first time I picked up and played it, it just felt right to me, he says. 
It was designed to blend the playability and high-end sound of a Strat with the darkness and full-bodied sound of a Les Paul. The neck is hard rock maple, the body is maple too. Also, it has one pickup with one volume knob. I've never had the need for lots of knobs or switches, so the design has suited my needs perfectly. Um, in addition to this, all GNL Rampages built between 1984 and 1987 sported an ebony fretboard with 22 frets. Along with the aesthetic modifications, Cantrell also made a few hardware changes to the Rampage, switching out the original Charla pickup for a Seymour Duncan Jeff Beck model and later a Motor City pickup. Returning to the 2010 Guitar World interview, uh, which was to promote the release of the GNL Jerry Cantrell Rampage signature model, Cantrell says, uh, The signature model will feature a few tweaks I came up with, uh, simply because some elements of the original design were weak. The locking mechanism at the nut was basically just a couple of plates that clamped down, but they would snap off every time you put pressure on them, so I replaced the nut with a Floyd Rose, which is a lot sturdier and more stable. In addition, Cantrell says, the guitar came stock with a Carla tremolo system and the low E string would fall out of the saddle uh, when you push the tremolo bar all the way down. The solution was to countersink the tremolo, which put more tension on the strings and kept the E string sitting securely in the saddle. Um, while many guitar players have shown a preference for Floyd Rose trems, that never really worked for me because I'm very heavy a very heavy-handed rhythm player, Cantrell says. Whenever I'd mute the f with the Floyd... Um, I'd always push down too hard and inadvertently raise the pitch of the strings. That doesn't happen with the Carla. So, years of touring and recording caused a hairline crack to appear in the back of the guitar, uh, which has led to its semi-retirement and it only coming out uh, for studio sessions. Hmm? Um, so there you go. I mean, it is, but you know, as basic as a guitar can be, you know, accepting the, the locking tremolo system, but it's just... A rock and roll machine, it is, isn't it? Um, and it's perfect for, you know, the Alice in Chains sound because it is. It is surprising actually, even though it's got one pickup. You know, there, there is a variety of, of tone in there. You know, it, there seems to be. Um, I don't know if there's if there's um, things going on elsewhere in Control's rig, um, as we will possibly find out uh, when we start talking about his amps. But it, it seems to me that you can get a variety of different. Tonalities out of it gets something guitar. which resembles a neck, uh, yeah, a neck pickup out of it at times. Yeah. Doing some of his solos, um, yeah. So he knows what to do with it. To be honest, he does. He does. He absolutely does. So um, we we touched on um, the amps that we used in the recording of Dirt a little earlier on. Um, we'll get into a little bit more depth about this, maybe a little bit too much depth for some people. I might have to uh, edit edit some of this out. It's interesting to me, um, and that's all that matters, really. It really is, Phil. Yeah, yeah. So we've already talked about how Dave Jordan recorded the guitars for Dirt by splitting the guitar signal into three separate signals that could be EQ'd independently of one another. But let's dive a little deeper into the gear that was used to achieve this. For the high-frequency content, 4 kilohertz and above with an 8 kilohertz cutoff, Cantrell's guitar signal was put through a Rockman headphone amp. And how they arrived at that? How they got to... For all the amps in the world, you know, everything yeah. that there is, how do you get to something which is a well, rock, Rockman guitar amp? Dave Jordan has expressed in interviews his penchant for cheap, crappy gear. And not right. that the Rockman headphone amp is crappy gear, because I'm sure it's not 
But I think in his search for unique sounds or, you know, different sonic palettes, um, I think he is drawn to gear that is not as popular or not as well-known or not as expensive. I think I think he's just one of those producers that's just open to hmm. anything, regardless of, of how much it costs. Does yeah. it sound good? Yeah. And, and really, that's all that matters, I think. And the Rockman headphone amp obviously sounded good. So I found this website um, called killerguitarrigs.com, which isn't about guitar rigs that... You know, like Christine, the movie where the car oh, yeah. kills people. It's not. It's not like the guitar amp equivalent of that. Um, it's guitar amps that are good. Oh, I get or, you. In the modern right. parlance, killer. Right. So there you go. Parlance of our times, yeah. Yeah. So from killerguitarrigs.com, um, I was able to gain the following information: the Rockman headphone amp was developed by Tom Schultz, who was. Uh, the guitar player and songwriter, I believe, in the band Boston. I did not know that. There you go. Um, more than a feeling, which is what you used to get on a weekend if you were lucky. <laughs> oh, well done. Thanks. Thank well you. Well done. Schultz. Uh, he's still alive. He's a very smiley man. Well, I would be if I were him because he's done very well for himself and he wrote a rock classic. Yeah. Um, which will forever be in the canon. Um, he is also. Uh, a Massachusetts Institute of Technology graduate. Smart ass um, as well. <laughs> yep, who designed and built his own recording studio in the early 70s. That takes some dedication. It certainly does. And, well, was he in the band at that time? Um, I don't know if he was in Boston at that time right. or if he joined afterwards, I'm not sure. So the Rockman headphone amp, um, its function, as we've discussed briefly already um, was meant to allow guitarists to plug in both their guitar and an auxiliary input e.g. their stereo um, and then play along with records while listening on headphones the unit allowed the user to add compression distortion and echo slash chorus um, which may have been um, part of the appeal to Jordan just those you know a bit mm. of a uh, bit of overdrive and a bit of uh, chorusing and whatnot. The units had a very high signal-to-noise ratio, uh, meaning that you could get a lot of signal from them with little to no hiss or other interference. Um, So they could actually be used for studio applications and were eventually developed into rack mount units. Right. So, yeah, so again, part of the high appeal, you know, no additional hiss you know, or other noise um, would would make this very uh, uh, attractive unit uh, for someone like Dave Jordan, I would think. From Rockman.fr, which I think is sort of an official um, fan site, right? Okay. Or maybe it's an official site from somebody who now owns the the all the rights and whatnot. The Rockman was launched in 1982, um, and it was an instant hit. In 1982, there were no home studios no doors, and playing DI through the band mixer was too exotic for the majority of guitarists. So the Rockman was completed by a fancy accessory, headphones, exclamation mark. Which makes me think I should say the word headphones with a bit more emphasis. Yeah, give it some zhuzh. Okay. So the Rockman was completed by a fancy accessory, headphones. That's the one. I'm just looking on that Rockman FR website. Yeah. It's it's a fantastic website. It is, isn't it? It's really well built. It's like the one and yeah, it's like the very, very first types of website that people put together in yeah. which I quite like actually. Yeah. 
yeah, something uh, quite endearing about it. So the name itself, uh, the Rockman, was based on Sony's Walkman. Um, and a set of headphones was actually the most convenient way to provide quality stereo sound. Um, if you want to understand what a Rockman is and why it sounds so good, the first thing to do is forget the headphones, which has also got an exclamation point. Say it again then. Oh, God. If you want to understand what a Rockman is and why it sounds so good, the first thing to do is forget the headphones. That's the one. <laughs> oh, we do have a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting late now. It is. Um, think of the Rockman as a stereo amp simulator designed to be connected directly into the sound card of your PC or in the mixer of your band. So, um, writing about the internal structure of the Rockman, the article goes on to say, uh, one can roughly identify two parts. The first mono section that corresponds to the amp simulator itself, then a stereo effects section with stereo chorus and stereo reverb. All in all, you connect your guitar to the Rockman and the signal goes through first a compressor, then a distortion unit, or nothing if you're choosing the clean mode, um, and then a cab simulator. Following the, the cab simulator, um, there then comes the stereo part where the Rockman creates two different versions of the signal. One channel is based on the dry original signal plus, um, plus some reverb, and the other channel goes through a short delay modulated by an LFO. Um, that's the chorusing effect. Plus another reverbed sound. You now have two channels left and right with a huge spatial image due to both the stereo chorus and the stereo reverb. Do you have stereo left and stereo right? You do have stereo left and stereo right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's all you need. It's all you need. <laughs> it's the only thing you need, stereo left and stereo right. The cab sim of the Rockman was, in 1982, a truly innovative concept, certainly the first circuit designed to reproduce the frequency response of a guitar speaker in such a small device. The concept was so new that SR&D didn't even think about calling it a cab sim. It was simply called Complex Filter. If this cab sim mimics the frequency response of a guitar speaker, it cannot duplicate its dynamic response, and that was critical. The main difference between a real amp and any amp simulator is that the speaker has some physical mechanical inertia that levels the tough peaks of the guitar signal. The attack of an electric guitar is way too strong to be pleasant to hear and that's why we need these big speakers. They kind of compress these unpleasant attacks. So um, to get around this, this is why there's a compressor in the Rockman. So, the it says here that the compressor is the real secret of Tom Schultz's guitar sound, much more than EQs, filters and saturation. The simple compression circuit of the Rockman limits the attack of the note and attenuates the difference between the initial peak of the note and its decay. And that's what a guitar speaker does with its mechanical inertia. And that's what makes the Rockman sound realistic, combined with the cab sim. So, so there you go, that's the, uh, that's the Rockman headphone amp. Um, original units that I found on sale uh, currently will set you back uh, four to £500. Did you buy one? So, uh, no, no. No? I mean, you know... Limited use. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, you know, Dave Jordan put it to, to good effect, but I'm not convinced that I could or would.
So um, the, the amp that was uh, used to record the mid-frequencies of Cantrell's guitar sound, which was the 300Hz to 4kHz range, was handled by a 100-watt Bogner Ecstasy. Um, from Wikipedia, uh, Bogner Amplification is an American guitar amplifier manufacturing company founded by Reinhold Bogner in 1989 in Los Angeles, California. German amp builder Reinhold Bogner moved to California hoping to gain entrance into the burgeoning market for high-gain guitar amplifiers, where Mitsubishi was the market leader and companies like Soldano and Rivera amplifiers were following in Mitsubishi's footsteps. Um, the first amplifiers he made were often based on 1960s Fender Showmans, even using the original faceplate and chassis. They were hand-wired one-off custom amps, which he sold to players such as Eddie Van Halen, Steve Stevens and Alan Holdsworth. From Bradford, Alan Holdsworth. Is he? Yeah, he's an absolutely amazingly talented, or was an absolutely amazingly talented genius prog rock guitarist. Mm. I recommend that you check out some of his stuff with Soft Machine. It's just good out of this world. Apparently, uh, Bogner's big break came when Eddie Van Halen entrusted him to repair his favourite Marshall Plexi, which obviously he did to Eddie Van Halen's satisfaction, um, because uh, Van Halen then became one of his customers. The Ecstasy was, and still is, Bogner's flagship amp, a three-channel, 100-watt head, with a ton of switching options for gain, um, three gain stages per channel, EQ and preamp modes, um, a half-power switch, Class A slash AB switch and a tube driven effects loop. So that's a lot of features. Um, you know, compared with, you know, 1960s Marshall Plexi, mm. that's like all whistles and bells, isn't that? Definitely. There were two custom options to choose from the 101A, which was loaded with 6L6 power tubes for a more American slash fender sound, and the 101B, which was loaded with EL34 power tubes for a more British Marshall sound. Um, this second option was apparently very close to the Fender Meets hot-rodded Marshall sound that Bogner had originally strived towards. So there you go. That's the uh, Bogner Ecstasy, which I believe is still in production today. Shall we have a look? Let's have a look, yeah. I mean, it definitely sort of chimes with, you know, the Boogie Mark IV was sort of out around that time. Certainly the Mark III was already out at that point. You know, all of which had sort of different switching options and different tonal options and, and whatnot. Well, they do a mini one. Yeah. They do a pedal version. Ooh. Um, I can't actually... Right, maybe uh, maybe they're not in production anymore. While we're on it, why are Mesa Boogie called Mesa Boogie? It's always confused me it's a very strange name. Yeah, well, their location is Mates, Mates of California. Right, OK. I believe that's a place. I think it's a place. Right, OK. Um, and the boogie part comes from Carlos Santana, who... Um, boogie started out modifying uh, Fender Princeton amps. Right. And making them louder. Pimping them. Yeah, pimping them up, hot-rodding them. Right, OK, I get you. Uh, and Carlos Santana plugged into one and said, man, this thing boogies. All right. So there you go. So they nicked that's, it. Uh, yeah, that's that's where the name came from. Thanks very much. You got good at this. Thanks, thanks. I know, I know some shit, don't I? Mm. So um, the low end frequency content, three hundred hertz and below, uh, where according to Jordan, the big guitar sound heard on dirt predominantly comes from, um, was handled by another Bogner product, the Fish preamp, fed into a VHT amp into a Marshall cab loaded with Vox Bulldog speakers. The Bogner Fish is a two-unit 19-inch rack-mounted valve preamp. 
um, which is basically all the parts of the amp that lead up to the power amp section. Yep. That drive the speakers. So it's 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 all those bits minus the power amp. I get scared when there's too many tubes in amps. Do you? Don't you just think there's just so much that could go wrong? Oh, the tubes are your friends. I know, but... Unless they fall out. That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> You've just gone from saying they're your friends to saying unless something... <laughs> So. When the amp's firing on all cylinders, it's definitely I, your friend. I know there's nothing quite like it, but it's just, yeah. you know, there'd always be that little thing in the back of my mind. Yeah. Something's going to go wrong here. So from Sweetwater.com, uh, I gained this information. The original Bogner fish was designed in the late 80s and was Bogner's second official product following the Triple Giant. Uh, the Triple Giant had three channels, and only 25 pieces were made of the original design. The first incarnation of the Fish, four-channel all-tube guitar preamp and logical evolution of the Triple Giant, was limited to only about 250 pieces and made between 1990 and 1993. Uh, so it's pretty rare to find one these days. Cantrell's Fish preamp was modded by Bogner to have uh, what is referred to as the Cantrell mod, uh, whereby a bright dark switch found on unmodified units was replaced by a potentiometer. One of them? One of them, yeah. Five and a half grand if you want one, a 1991. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's only 250 of them. So this um, this potentiometer uh, would allow Cantrell to dial in just the right blend of light and dark into the guitar signal. Returning to Sweetwater.com, basically um, they reissued the Fish preamp in recent years. Um, so the recreated preamp... Uh, includes four distinctive channels. Country, with sparkling clean sound for all musical styles. Shark, with a low again, very open sounding Vox meets Fender type of vibe. Strato, which gives you tight response and high aggressive gain. And Brown, with a fat sounding high gain character. Um, so other features of the Bogner Fish include, so it's four channel all tube design with master volume and presence controls on the back panel. Eight 12AX7 preamp tubes. It's eight, tu- eight possible sources of disaster. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, blue adenized front with white chicken head knobs. I'm not sure why that's a feature. But they do look good though. They do look good, yeah. Yeah. Um, one front and one rear input, parallel dual outputs on the back. Country channel with volume, treble, middle, and bass controls and three position bright switch. Um, on the shark channel, you've got gain, treble, bass and volume controls, again with a three-position bright switch. Strato gives you gain, volume, shared treble, bass and middle controls with the brown channel. Right. The one I'm looking at as well has got a little switch where you can go between jazz and funk. I, 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 your I, I your need, two favourite genres of music. Yeah, I, I need that switch in my life. Yeah. Definitely. Can you imagine, like, you know, you're playing a function. And switch. S- yeah, Sunday. Somebody asks you for, you know, a bit of jazz or whatever. Hmm. I, I'm rubbish at playing jazz guitar, but if I had a switch that could, you know, help me out in that, hmm. I'd pay five and a half grand for that. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, so, you know, for, for, for a two-unit rack-mounted piece of kit, uh, it's jam-packed with quite a lot of features, so I can see why its versatility would appeal hmm. to folks in a studio setting. I like it. It's good. Moving on to uh, effects uh, for Jerry Cantrell. From a 2013 Premier Guitar interview, um, I started off playing the Jimi Hendrix version of the Dunlop Crybaby 
and a few years ago the guys at Dunlop decided to design one for me. My tone has a little bit more darkness to it and I'll play the crybaby not even rocking it back and forth in a full sweep. I use half or three quarter sweeps so Dunlop took those elements and put them into that pedal. It has a darker throatier tone to it that I'm really happy with. And as far as effects goes that's that's it really it? For, for Jerry Cantrell yeah just the a wah on, pedal yeah it's on Rain When I Die the verse yeah. the intro to Dirt yeah a bit yeah. of wire on that and then it pops up he likes it yeah. in a solo doesn't he not yeah. quite so much as Kirk Hammett but he does like a, a little wire pedal he does he does so that's it for Jerry Cantrell quite a, a, a complex setup really you know when you consider that you know when we're talking about Metallica we, we're just talking about one amp, one head, and one cab. It sounds like a band who have been given a lot of money to do the second album, <laughs> don't they? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of money, a lot yeah. of time. Yeah. Go on. They're not being given a week, have they, to record no. it? And and even at the time, you know, Bogner gear wouldn't have been cheap, comparatively yeah. speaking. You know, in the early 90s, um, I remember looking at Mates of Boogie amps uh, and Soldano amps and thinking, two grand no. for an amp? <laughs> Should we talk about Mike Starr and his bass guitars? Mike Starr and his bass guitars. <laughs> yeah, so that's I like that. Reeves and Mortimer, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Mike Starr <laughs> and his bass guitars. <laughs> um, well, I mean, primarily, he was using a brand of bass guitar that, excuse my ignorance, but until researching this, I'd never actually heard of Spectre basses. I did not. I think no. they were more probably more uh, popular in that era of late 80s into the 90s you know like that wild west of the 90s where even like your most revered artists started straying away from the traditional instruments yeah i think yeah. spectre were one of the ones that they moved towards right they are great basses yeah they seem they seem quite a pioneering um well they're, a, bases, they're active so. for a start yeah. which wasn't overly popular at the time which means well i'll come on to that in a minute but the very smooth they were designed yeah. to be a kind of ergonomically sound. I'm just holding in my hand the base book, which is a very good book for the... In fact, it's built as being a complete illustrated history of bass guitars. Right. Who's it by? It's by Tony Bacon and Barry Morehouse, which Wait. are brilliant names. <laughs> I love it. Well, Tony Bacon I've heard of. <laughs> Have you? Um, yeah, because I've got a book. I've got the Ultimate Guitar book, which I think is one of his. All right, um, okay. The other guy, not so sure. He, he sounds like he should be the concert secretary at uh, Alverthorpe Working Men's Club. Maybe he was, yeah. or maybe he is. Yeah, they're very gold. They've got a lot of gold hardware on them. Active yeah. pickups, um, very nice sort of figured wood, neck through design. Um, yeah, so he used one of those. Yeah, I believe his was a, a 1987 Kramer era bass, uh, uh, serial number 1438. Hmm. I so, think Kramer bought Spectre out. Yeah, they did, yeah. Which, to yeah. my mind, is a bit like Ford buying Porsche out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, because um, yeah. to me, Kramer, and I, I don't know very much about Kramer yeah. guitars, but they don't. I've never really used one, but they don't have the same sort of weight and gravitas yeah. as some of the other brands. The, the Porsche Mondeo. <laughs> Porsche Mondeo, yeah. So, yeah, a white one. He has a few. If you look at live footage of him, he, he used... Yeah. I don't think I've seen much of him, like, using anything else yeah. uh, apart from Spectre guitars, unless you look on really early footage of him, you know, before the money and the endorsements came in. Yeah. So he's got um, 
precision and jazz pickup configuration, which means you have like split coil towards the neck and then a single coil jazz style pickup towards the bridge. Yeah. Um, and I think he played with a pick and fingers, not simultaneously. No. But he varied between the two, especially if you look at live footage. I've been watching that Rock in Rio, which was his last gig. Um, and on songs like um, Them Bones and Wood, he's using a pick on some of the others like Damn That River, Junkhead. Godsmack is using fingers, so maybe it's just whatever he fancied at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, whatever feels right, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. But the bass sound on this album is absolutely immense. It is. I think we'll we'll sort of touch on why that is in a moment when we talk about the number of basses or different <laughs> kinds of basses that uh, that Mike Starr was using on this, uh, this album. So... Um, just a little bit more uh, info on Spectre Guitars, a little bit of uh, history on them. From SpectreBass.com, uh, Spectre Guitars was founded in Brooklyn, New York in 1976 by Stuart Spectre and uh, Alan Charney, both of whom were members of the Brooklyn Woodworkers Co-op that shared space in an old factory building. I like the sound of that. I do as well. Brooklyn Woodworkers Co-op. It sounds, uh, sounds quite socialist appeals to me um it was there that stuart learned uh, machine woodworking from billy thomas a friend and founder of the co-op business started in 1976 with sales to gracin music i think that's how you pronounce that g-r-a-c-i-n gracin music not sure um on 48th street in new york city uh, both g1 electric guitars and sb1 bases designed by stuart were in the original product line Somebody else of note was part of that corp as well. Yeah, go on. Ned Steinberger. Oh, headless bass guitar and yeah. guitar person. So when I was talking about even the most kind of revered guitarists or the ones who you think would be like your most traditional ones veering off brand, like Geddy Lee from Rush, yeah. who is um, like one of the, you know, people love Geddy Lee. I am not a Rush fan, but I appreciate Yeah. I appreciate it in a way. Yeah. He used a Steinberger bass. And they look like a cricket bat, don't they? Yeah. Basically. They do. Um, But apparently they're amazing. Designed to kind of be ergonomically pleasing as well as sounding good. Yeah. But... What more can you ask for? More than that. Have you if you have you seen one? It's not for me. What <laughs> a nine, the Steinberger bass <laughs> and the guitars look even weirder. Yeah, but didn't hang on, hang on, hang on. Andy Summers, hang, did he have one? I, I don't I remember like, Andy. I remember David Gilmore playing the. That's what I mean. Steinberger guitar. Yeah, everybody kind of veered off. But did hang on? Didn't you have a, a headless status bass at one point? No, he had a head on it. Did it? Yes, oh, I've never had a headless bass. Oh damn. I know. I've had a, point, got, I've had a pointy bass, no, but no headless. Right, okay. Fair enough. As you say, Ned Steinberg was a, a, a member of this uh, Brooklyn Woodworkers Co-op and he became interested in the work Spectre was doing and offered to design a bass. And apparently he'd learnt... Uh, Ned, Ned's philosophy with bass building was that form follows function, as you've just said, you know, um, ergonomically pleasing and, mm. and easy to get your hands around and, yeah. and whatnot. And he used that philosophy in designing the NS bass guitar, which, uh, as you've already said, um, has an elegant, ergonomically curved design and a neck-through body construction uh, that Spectre was already utilising at this point. Um, so the first NS1 bass came off production line in 1977, 
And that was later followed by the two pickup model that we're talking about now, the NS2, uh, and that came out in 1979. As we've already touched upon, uh, in 1985, the Spectre brand was sold to Kramer Guitars and production moved to their facility in Neptune, New Jersey, which is uh, next to Zeus, New Jersey, and Poseidon, New Jersey. And uh, Uranus. Uranus, yeah. Can't leave out... Uranus. Uranus. <laughs> we got to touch upon Uranus. Yeah. Uh, which is where Mike Starr's base was manufactured. What, Uranus? Sorry, couldn't <laughs> help it. Couldn't resist. The article goes on to say, in addition to Spectre's increasing public awareness through the broader worldwide dealer network, the brand struck pop culture gold in 1983 when a white Spectre NS2 base was sold to Sting as part of the police's synchronicity tour. Um, At the peak of their popularity, the police and Sting introduced the brand to a mainstream audience as that white NS2 was played, photographed and filmed for the rest of that worldwide tour. Do you think think they gave it to him? Do you think sold to Sting is a bit of a... Yes, I I do not for one second imagine that Sting purchased that guitar with his own money. No. And, you know, it would, would like like it says, it would be a, a very shrewd move on uh, Spectre's part, I think, to uh, donate, shall we say, um, one bass to Sting. So, um, in comparison to other bass guitars widely used at the time, uh, Fender Precision, Music Man, Stingray, Rickenbacker, 4001, etc., the NS2 was quite a premium instrument um, by the look of it. It... Uh, featured a three-piece laminated hard maple through neck construction, Bolivian rosewood fingerboard, uh, mother of pearl inlays and gold hardware, which I've put in the brackets in my notes, is your favourite. I do, I love a bit of gold hardware. Um, Especially on a white guitar. Yeah, although I don't mind it on a Gibson Les Paul Custom, I think they're the ones, or Gibson, don't mind it on SG, or uh, you generally as a rule, it's a no-no. Yeah, yeah. For me. So, um, it's also featured some quite advanced electronics for 1979 that were not typically found on uh, lesser bass guitars. Um, and the, that, that came in the form of the Has 9-volt preamp circuit, developed in partnership with Has Laboratories, who also built circuits for Steinberg guitars. So, you know, it sounds like there was quite a little, um, you know, clique of guitar... Um, mm. Uh, pioneers uh, in uh, in that area of uh, New York. I think have you heard of, you know Federa guitars? I think mm. that was born around that time as right. well. I think, right. I think Vinnie Federa, which sounds like a mafia boss. Yeah, I'm sure he's not. Um, I think he was part of all that group, but I could be wrong. But yeah, there was quite a few different, um, yeah, you know, good guitar brands of quite. Boutique type guitar brands yeah. that were born around that time. Yeah, like Alembic, I think they were another one. Now they're right? ugly guitars, aren't they? <laughs> they're massive as well. Yeah. Are they? They're absolutely yeah. enormous. Yeah, they are. So, yeah, so from uh, the Spectre owner's manual, speaking of the Has preamp, um, the original Spectre preamp, or Has preamp, this classic circuit features active bass and treble controls with the ability to cut and boost, providing the player with complete tonal flexibility. Um, the original circuit was a 9-volt circuit and is still found to this day on the NS2. This is the circuit uh, heard on countless recordings since the late 1970s. The 18-volt Spectre Has circuit is an updated version of the classic with added headroom and clarity. 
These cherished circuits are only available in our USA series instruments. So that's from their current um, website. So um, when combined with the active EMG P and J pickups, which I believe stands for Precision and Jazz. It does, well done. Um, I that, don't know what has stands for. H-O-Z? I think it's to do with the guy's name who founded it. Right, um, okay. But anyway, I should really know that, but... Don't beat yourself. Above shoot it, me. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> don't shoot me. The Has preamp uh, helped the NS2 to pack quite a punch. So as Spectre say um, themselves, um, the distinct, unmistakable sound of a Spectre bass can be heard on some of the biggest and most memorable records in modern music. The premium materials and time-honoured techniques used to craft these instruments provides players with unprecedented levels of stability and sustain and a level of definition no other bass can compete with. All of the natural tone of the Spectre bass is enhanced with our proprietary active circuitry. The coveted Spectre has 9 volt preamp is the source of this famous sound, providing the famous Spectre growl when paired with your favourite amplifier and effects. I'll be honest, I, I, I don't feel like I'm in a position to disagree with any of that. It's very convincing. Um, I mean, they do have a, a very, very good, unique, uh, in a good way, tone. They've kind of fallen out of favour a bit recently. You you know, like if you went, if you watch footage of any uh, festivals or live gigs now, you probably just see the usual basses out there. Whereas if you looked at any live concerts in the 80s, you'd probably see a spectre mm. there at some point. Um, but yeah, they have fallen out of favour a little bit as, as the bass playing trend now is to just play jazz basses or precision basses. Are they are they a bit too hi-fi? I think so, yeah. You do, and unless you're playing very, very... If you're playing music that needs it, then, you know, they're suitable for that, I suppose. But, yeah, they, yeah. you don't see that many people playing them now. And they're not cheap either. And they weren't no. cheap even when they came out. I know. I, I, was just, I was just about to go on to say that uh, in 1979, a brand new NS2 bass, including the hard case, would set you back $2,000, which adjusted for inflation is $8,357.11 today, which is a shade over 6,700 quid. Jeez. Which is a huge investment. I mean, you've got you've really got to be either super rich yep. or get it a recording artist. Yeah, I'll get it given <laughs> you know? to you. I'm in um, the studio, I don't it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are, I mean, undoubtedly like little works of art and not sort of mass production bases like... Fender Precisions and Jazz Basses, but yeah, they just don't really fit in too much now with the currency. Maybe they'll come back again. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um, Mike Starr's collection of bass guitars and guitars um, is, as far as I'm aware, currently for sale via a website called rockstarsguitars.com. I am on it now. So there is, there's go. a couple of Spectre NS2s, three of them. Oh, yeah. For say, oh, they don't give you the prices though, do they? No. In fact, he's got quite a few of them actually. Yeah. He's got a, a washburn, like a very pointy one, which maybe that was one that he used earlier on in his yeah. career. A Warwick thumb bass. Yeah. And a Rickenbacker of 2009, so obviously post Alice in Chains. There is a bit of a blurb about um, the bass that Mike Starr used on uh, Dirt on there, which I believe is already sold. So it did, don't, Yeah, it does say sold. Don't everybody get excited and... and There's some other good stuff on there. It's worth, there. It's, it's worth a look. It's worth a look. But it says, uh, this Spectre NS2 bass serial number 1438 uh, was owned and used by Mike Starr. 
It's finished in white uh, and it is made in the USA, being completed on November the 18th, 1987 and shipped to Mike from Spectre. This bass was used in the recording of the two Alice in Chains albums, Facelift and Dirt, and was Mike's main bass that he used on tour with Alice in Chains. This bass was used on Alice in Chains music videos, Bleed the Freak, Man in the Box, Wood and Angry Chair. Um, Mike played this bass on his last show with Alice in Chains at the Hollywood Rock Festival Mm -hmm. in Brazil in January 1993. It can be seen in numerous live photos and magazines. It comes with one of Mike's original Spectre hard cases. I think he used it on songs that were tuned EADG and then the black one was the drop D ones. Right, right. Right. From what I can make out from live footage. Yeah. And he wore it very low as well, which I approve of. Well, yeah. Yeah. Very, very low. Yeah, yeah I mean, if you've got the arms for it, then yeah. why not? Why not? Just a couple of blokes Pouring all the line of notes We're the rock geeks Yeah, we're the rock geeks You have reached the end of side one. Well done. Take the rest of the programme. Please fast forward and turn over the cassette. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Rock Geeks podcast. If you have any comments, corrections and or constructive criticism, you can contact us at therockgeeks at gmail.com. If you have anything unnecessarily rude to say, please put it in your own trash folder and delete it to save us the bother. While we do read every email we receive, we cannot unfortunately guarantee a reply. The Rock Geeks is researched, written and presented by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Jingles composed and recorded by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Editing by Phil Greenwood. If you have enjoyed the Rock Geeks podcast, please consider joining us at Patreon, where in exchange for your generosity you will receive ad-free episodes, bonus content and early access. Or alternatively, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us.